This is Fight Night, a new podcast from iHeartRadio. They thought he had robbed a deadliest man in this country. Guys who would not hesitate to blow your head off. This story from Atlanta, Georgia, has been reported for 50 years. But now, for the first time, you're going to hear what really happened from the people who lived it. Listen and follow Fight Night on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Dr. Wendy Walsh, host of the podcast, Mating Matters. I believe nearly every human behavior is motivated by a desire for love. I love the romantic endings. I believe in happy endings. Sex. Sometimes find myself looking for reasons to have sex. Or to hedge your reproductive odds. I've always been very active. In Mating Matters, we explore how our ancient brains are interacting with the modern world. Listen to Mating Matters on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. For the week of Thursday, April 23rd, protesters are demanding a return to normalcy and marching in cities across the country. Governors and mayors of several states and cities are marching towards a gradual and in some cases abrupt reopening. And the Biden campaign seems to be continuing to march in place. Our guests in quarantine from New York, suburban Maryland and Raleigh, North Carolina will help us figure out if there's really any benefit to having low gas prices if we can't even go anywhere. And maybe even answer the question, how the heck are we going to get along? Hey, I'm Clay Aiken. This is Politicon's How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along? Our panel this week is, as illustrious as always, host of TYT Politics and producer for the Young Turks, Emma Vigland is with us. Professor at Morgan State University, political contributor for MSNBC, and writer at thegrio.com, Dr. Jason Johnson is with us. Political analyst, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and former RNC Chairman Michael Steele, and conservative commentator, co-host of PBS's In Principle, and columnist for Zweltwoche, <laughs> Amy Holmes is with us. How was my high school German? Amy, was it okay? <laughs> that was great. I'm impressed. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's better than my it's better than my um, high school math. And my frustration over the past few, well, especially days, is long division with decimals. That's my first question for our panelists this evening. If there's any way that any of you can help me with long division with decimals, so I can help my 11 year old, that would be ideal. I have yes. this homeschooling thing is killing me. Calculator.com. <laughs> Calculator.com. I well, yeah, calculator without the dot com is how I've been handling it. I don't get, I mean, th- this, the homeschooling is how I'm handling my life for the past few weeks. Obviously, I don't know if anybody else is having to deal with that or not, but it is making me feel like an idiot because I could not figure out where to put the decimal when we divided decimals this morning. And yeah, that's my, that's my quarantine schedule. What are you all up to during the quarantine? How are you entertaining yourselves, uh, Michael Steele? Uh, well, I, I got through the Tiger King in about uh, a few hours, uh, so that started off. Like the Congratulations! <laughs> that was amazing. I, look, I sat down and I had a drink for the first episode. When I started the second episode, I brought the whole bottle into the room. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, were, were you oh. so the end? Yeah, oh my, all the way through, I just sat there and next, by the time I was done, it was I was two bottles into it. I was just like, okay, this is, I'm committed now. <laughs> so well, do we you were probably able that- to understand him. I think you have to be a little bit drunk it. to understand Thanks. him. Right, right. Either that or on Crystal Mass. I was going to say, yeah. do we all agree yeah. that Carol killed her husband and fed him to her tiger? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Carol did. We, that's the only can, thing we can all agree upon. We can and agree that, on and that. And unfortunately, unfortunately for Carol, given that we are all in quarantine, and I think probably every person in the country has watched that documentary at this point, she will never find an unbiased jury. I mean, she's going to She's out. Luckily for her, we'll never all find know, her husband. All I know, folks, is I haven't been right since. So I, I, you know, I just I try to re recalibrate by watching the coronavirus press rallies every day between five and seven. So that's what I'm doing. That that wow that doesn't that decompresses you from this? Please, you got to be kidding. It took me days to recover from Tiger King. I'm obsessed. <laughs> Emma, you haven't have you seen it? I have. So I'm obsessive about it as well. And my controversial hot take is that. Carol Baskin, yeah, she killed her husband. We all agree. Yeah. 
but but uh, <laughs> she might be the best person of the bad, terrible people featured in that documentary. It, it, the main characters, right? I liked I mean, that one armed gal. I thought she was. I'd, I'd be in a fox. Oh, Saf. Totally. Well, totally. Remember, Saf is the, now a man. Saf is now a man. So she's oh, not a gal okay. anymore. She she transitioned. Okay, so yes. He. he he was yeah. wonderful, well, like, but know, I mean, he, of, of, yeah. of the main tiger trainers, Doc Antle is a terrible guy. Uh, you know, Joe is just charismatic, not a good guy. Carol at least did a little bit good for the tigers, but you know, again, likely murderer. <laughs> yes, yes. You've seen yeah. it too, Jason. What are you? But but so we're all done with it. What else have you been doing to to occupy your <laughs> well, time while you're stuck inside? So I, I have. I'm I'm doing that classic thing where it's like, wow, I have all this time that I didn't think I'd have before. So I've been I've been doing that whole let me finish the book proposal that my editor has been screaming about. Um, I'm also still teaching classes. I'm, I'm faculty at Morgan State. All of our classes have been online. Um, you know, you you miss your kids. I don't have any children of my own, but you miss your students. Literally, we had class last night. Um, I have a small class of six students, two are roommates. And and just because I missed them so much, I bought pizza for my entire class, regardless of where they were in the country. We had a pizza party during class over over Google Hangout. Like that's <laughs> I mean, we're all doing things we never thought we'd do before. I predicted yes. and I like Michael, I am usually wrong. You say, Michael, you are, but I'm, I'm always wrong. And I, but I will say I did predict a few weeks ago when we started having to modify and bring this podcast into a, you know, online, we couldn't do our live audience thing. I predicted, listen, in a few weeks, people are, no matter how seriously they're taking this, people are going to go crazy. They're going to run out of things yep. to do. They're going to run out of Netflix to watch, and they're going to just start busting out of their houses and going and getting angry. And we started to see that, especially this week, I think. I, I, North Carolina here in Raleigh, We've been on the national news uh, because people were, have been marching around the governor's mansion uh, every day, I think, for the past week. They're happening in most major cities where folks are just just really over it. They're over being stuck inside, and a lot of people are starting to be concerned about the economy. Um, if you if you listen to what they're saying, Michael, do, do these protests have a legitimate message? It, they do to a certain extent. The, the problem I have with the messaging is the, the origins of the message. Um, this is not necessarily, I mean, I get folks get pent up, but if you look at it this way, if you had a president who came into the, into the, uh, the bully pulpit and said, uh, I know everybody's a little bit antsy right now, but we really need you to hold tight and be strong. I need you to continue to make a little bit more sacrifice with your family at home while we while we get the testing in place and the infrastructure in place to solve this problem so we don't have a recurrence. Or if we do, we can mitigate it quickly. Um, instead, the president goes out there and talks about liberating states from very, very important decisions that governors are making, by the way, based on his own guidelines of the administration. So for me, the, the frustration that has grown into anger around these protests has very little to do with the people who are protesting and more to do with the leadership that has begged it to happen and egged it on as opposed to stepping in and saying uh, something very different than what we have. To sit there and go, oh yeah, there are a lot of flags out there and people, people want to get back to work. They can go back to work when it's safe to go back to work. Our economy is taking the hit. Uh, and the Congress right now is trying to do everything it can to mitigate as much as possible against that hit. But as we pull in one direction, I feel the administration pulls in a different direction at the same time. And that just stirs a lot more frustrations among the American people who otherwise would probably not be as restless about getting back to work and getting back out to bars and, and strip clubs and tattoo parlors. So now um, we know what you've been answered about. Where's Rick Lutz come from? Right. But how long can we stay close? Amy, yeah. I can tell you. How long stay out My needs clubs, are very simple, uh, very basic. Right. But but yeah, you know, they do have stripping. Pornhub for free now, too, Michael, just in case say, you know. Michael, they've they, been they offering free stuff. Online, the, the world is really coming together. I have to, I'm really proud of us right. <laughs> to support right. each other in, in ways like that. Right. But you I know, just want to jump into Michael's point about, you know, people wanting to go outside. I just uh, published an interview with Bill Maher in Die Weltfoka. Just a little plug there. You can go to dieveltfoka.com to read it. And he makes the point 
that, you know, this isn't just about going to the beach or hiking in a national park. Most Americans are only two paychecks away from being broke. You know, the electricity bill is rolling in, the rent is rolling in, and there's very little margin for error. I'm not a wealthy person. You know, my Bitcoin investment of $700 is tanked to about $300. That Americans, they're not just talking about taking away our liberties, we're talking about survival. And how long can people survive not getting a paycheck? And we just saw the governor of New York, I live here in Manhattan, that he told protesters in New, in New York State, well, if you're hard up for cash uh, because you can't go to work, you should just go into an essential job. Go, you know, there are lots of job openings. Go work for Walmart or CVS or a pharmacy, which doesn't even make sense because that means right. interacting with the public all day long. So he's yeah, like, that was back that was outrageous. Well, here's here's the thing: I, it doesn't I, make sense. I, so we we need solutions that are to to address coronavirus, hospital uh, mitigation, hospital capacity, and so forth. But when people are getting angry, they're not just getting angry because they can't walk their dog; they're getting angry because they can't afford groceries. Exactly, and let me just jump on that point because I I think it's so important. I mean, it I think it's easy to to vilify the protesters and make fun of them. And we can all fall into that trap. I I try not to, but, um, but really it's the ire should be directed at our lawmakers for not providing them with the adequate safety net to be addressing this crisis in the way that it needs to be addressed. And that can fall on both sides of the aisle for. I'll give you an example of that. I I gotta, I gotta say this. Look, I I'm dealing with essential. A lot of my students are essential workers, Right. They're, they're college kids. They're, they're 20 somethings. Many of them are in homes where they're the only person who's working now, right? Because they, they work at Chipotle or they work at CVS or, or something else like that. It, yes, there's, there's plenty of blame that can go around. But I think there's a big difference between armed maniacs standing in front of state capitals and waving guns at people and waving Trump signs and the hundreds of thousands, the upwards of 20 million Americans who are just home and frustrated. Those people aren't out screaming at the state capitol right now waving guns. Those people are, you know, they have their eyes well, glued to the news every night wondering if they can get on. a solution. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I just don't think, I don't think most of these protesters well, I mean, right now are like representing the real the people who are in pain. Protesters. Well, there are real pe- people in pain. You can focus on the protesters and what you might think of them, but we do need to focus on the 22 million people out of work, the well, 22 that's, million that's people who are yeah. afraid. Right, so I mean, I just don't understand going down this sort of cul-de-sac of vilifying protesters when we should be focusing uh, on our fellow I, citizens. Because they don't represent the people who are actually in pain. They represent a unique agenda that's that's. Set but then, the then the Republican the people, Party, though, suffering in silence. then the Republican Party, Amy, should be pushing for stimulus checks right now. Um, and so that everyone gets. Well, cash I don't think hand. that's just up to the Republican Party. I think that's up to both parties in our entire federal government. Well, the Democrats in the example. House proposed a two thousand dollar stimulus right. check per person. And that was not what the Republican stance was. And I. Uh, I'm not here to defend Republicans or Democrats. I'm here as a, a citizen who is stuck in her apartment, her studio apartment in New York <laughs> City, who's also worried, who's also worried about where my me- my next paycheck is going to come from to pay the bills. I mean, this is a, a real material hardship that people are facing. I mean, I just tweeted a couple days ago that, you know, one of the upsides of coronavirus is that I've been losing weight because I'm all I'm eating are scrambled eggs and cream of wheat. And who can eat that all day long? Uh, but that, that is Michael, a you real get in here because I want you to make sure. Michael, you you had something you wanted to add. Yeah, I, I just I just want to I just want to say everybody's just kind of made my point. Uh, right. If, if you if the listeners when they hear hear this are going to hear the point that I made originally, I certainly was not blaming the protesters. I I I, I totally get where they're coming from, and you know myself right now having lost four contracts in the last four weeks. Um, have to recalibrate very quickly because uh, I've got mortgage and a wife and responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. So I totally get that. My point really kind of goes to the point that was made uh, just before um, about what the leadership should be doing. Um, this was this was not something that uh, suddenly came up on us this week. Um, this we're now talking about going into our fourth stimulus package uh, on on in coronavirus, our fourth. And if if our leadership have not been able to figure out that this is going to be a long term strategy, not a six week strategy, 
that mm-hmm. what we need to be looking at is how we help Americans survive, not to the end of May or April or June, but to the end of this year, the first quarter of next year. Folks, we're talking about a virus that Dr. Fauci himself said today, we're going to have to deal with again come September, October, November, December of this year. And that yeah. means that we're not, we're not, our leaders aren't taking the kind of responsibility to have, to put in place strong, aggressive efforts um, to, to mitigate a lot of the pain that that 20 million, uh, which could be 25, 30, 40 million before we know it, of, of unemployed individuals, let alone the other aspects of the economy that are impacted. So I'm not looking to place blame on people who are protesting. I get the politics of that, and I also get the, 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 the raw concern of it. I'm looking at the leadership because that's where the leadership has to step in and, and say this way. And, and that's we're not getting, I don't think, clearly right now. Yeah, well, I want to add something to, to, to what Michael said, and he probably has some insight on this. The, 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 key, the key to leadership and the key to opening the economy, which is what everybody wants, right? We want people who, to, to be able to go back to work, is setting up a system where we have enough testing in place where yes. people who are healthy can go to work and people who yeah. aren't healthy can stay home and get help. And just this week, uh, Governor Hogan right, got 400,000 tests that he had to buy from South Korea. Right. Like like we've got governors who, who are scrambling around like there is leadership out there, but they're having to compete with each other for prices. And literally, you know, the Republican governor of Blue State, Maryland, had to use his wife's familial connections to South Korea to buy tests. And that's the problem. Why, why do you think Trump is not helping with that? Is this, is this, a, is this another return to him being bitter at, at governors like Larry Hogan who have not been completely supportive well, of him despite being a Republican? Or, or what's, what's going on? Why is he not helping Pritzker? Because I believe J.B. Pritzker in Chicago also had to take a lot of this under his own um, control to get some supplies for Illinois. Um, but, but, so, but the governor of Florida did not. The governor of Florida got everything he wanted, 100 percent of his uh, of his requests right out of the gate. So, the but, John, York, but, but, but Cuomo, I mean, uh, New York did not. So the, so the, re- the reality of it is what has happened is that there is unfortunately a blue state, red state paradigm that gets played out from time to time. And in, in this in this virus uh, environment, and unfortunately, to to Dr. Jason's point, uh, the reality for governors is they have been forced into a situation that heretofore they've never had to confront. The federal right. government has always been their backstop when there when there's a shortage of funds, uh, there, there's a shortage of supplies and necessary. Um, uh, tools that they need to, to mitigate and deal with a particular disaster, whether it's environmental or whatever, um, the federal government has been that backstop. That's not been the case this time. Um, and you could say it's the president's political philosophy. Knowing the man, I know that's not the case. Uh, it is just <laughs> pure, it is pure uh, Trump. And how he's, you know, well, but hold on, hold on. I mean, I think, you know, that there is certainly a mix of politics that's going on. That's that's obvious. I mean, we saw that the governor of Michigan gave uh, a contract to a political ally, a Democratic uh, firm that would be scooping up uh, private medical information. When this came to light, she quickly had to backtrack. On the other side, you saw that President Trump, he sent uh, the Navy warship, the Navy ship, the Comfort to the, you know, here to Manhattan to be able to uh, take care of potential overflow from coronavirus hospitalizations. But there's the famous quote, which is never ascribed to, but you can ascribe to incompetence. So we also learned that the CDC had uh, messed up its testing kits right at the beginning. And I think there was a lot of, you know, sort of the fog of war of people not really understanding the impact of coronavirus, what we needed to be looking forward to. But I can give you the example of Switzerland. It's a, a country that, uh, you know, where my magazine that I write for is published. Anyway, they got on it very early. And one of the first things that they did, because they're Swiss and they're efficient, is they set in place um, a 
furlough program that the government would float people who were thrown out of work for 80% of their salary. We haven't seen these sorts of uh, proposals here, it seems, really gaining any traction. Why that is, I don't know, but we need to look at it. Emma, when we started, I want to get Emma in, but and yeah, you know what, respond to that too. But I also want you to try to respond to the fact that, that who who do we trust? I mean, the truth is we <laughs> we shouldn't put we shouldn't put politics in a national tragedy. Um, we removed politics after nine eleven thankfully, um, for the most part, for, for several years at least. But when we started this pandemic and we started these social distancing things, the first episode we had of this podcast, people all seemed to believe we were going to be able to keep politics out of something. We would all be able to, to stick together. Um, but the next week, it became very much a blame game. The president has done a good job of that. But when you look at, I mean, when, when I sit and watch the news, which I am trying my best not to anymore, it looks to me like certain governors, uh, Kemp in Georgia, McMaster in South Carolina, Nome in South Dakota, are almost falling all over themselves to prove to President Trump that they are not afraid of this. They'll reopen. They'll not shut down. And instinctively, Democrats are going to respond to that sort of, we should open the government instinctively with, no, we should keep it closed. And things have become so political that I personally as a as a democrat and a progressive am not even sure myself if i believe democrats when they say we have to stay shut for the next 10 months or we have to social distance for the next 4 years because i worry are are they just saying that because they need to disagree with republicans are republicans saying that because they need to disagree with democrats emma i want you to respond to what amy was talking about but also talk about the politicization and how we can't may not be, a lot of people may not feel they can trust either party. Well, uh, my point, the only thing I was going to say is I think part of it is because we have a for-profit healthcare system in this country. And so we were not prepared because of that as a compounding factor. And also because Trump decided to host rallies and not adequately prepare the CDC and the federal government for the kind of response that they needed to have. So, but uh, look, I think everything's inherently political. Um, I mean, the, the response to 9-11 was extremely political. We invaded the country illegally based on fake information, and we killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and tens of thousands of American soldiers. So that's, that's politics. And, um, you know, what I'm scared of is bad actors, in my view, like Trump and, and people who are selfish or people who are looking to enrich themselves are going to use this national crisis and disaster to capitalize on it and push through. Do you mean like pot bellies taking millions? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, look, I, and yeah. my criticism. Or I, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Or Harvard. Or Harvard with yeah. a, what, $40 billion endowment. And yeah, I... I, I but I'm ta- and I think those are great examples. I'm talking more structural changes where, you know, we saw after 9-11, um, they got rid of civil liberties in a way that the Bush administration with many Democrats on board got rid of civil liberties in a way that we're looking back on now as well. That was unconstitutional and uncalled for. We, we surveilled, our, uh, you know, Mike Bloomberg, for example, surveilled Muslim civilians in the tri-state area in a way that is completely against the law and discriminatory. And now we're seeing Trump's travel ban, which seems to be counterintuitive when the, 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 the disease is already here. Uh, I'm not saying it's right. going to hurt, but this could be the kind of situation where we're having this economic collapse, where we're having this pandemic that's ravaging communities of color more spe- specifically, lower income uh, and, and black Americans much harder than the rest of us, where you could see extremist politicians like the ones that populate the Trump administration um, pushing through policies that otherwise would not have gotten through um, in this far-right nationalist agenda that I fear he wants to push forward. Yeah, politicians are going to politic. We all know this. What to me has been a lot more concerning is the politicization of information and the types of questions that we're asking about the science. 
this virus work? What are we learning? Uh, are, you know, we're learning that the virus is mutating and that uh, some people are getting reinfected in different parts of the world. So even if we did have testing, even if we did get a vaccine, and unfortunately, because I think our media is so political that we don't have science reporters, you know, asking uh, important questions about this. Data from Florida, for example, is really surprising. At the beginning of the crisis, I thought, Florida, my God, it's like an open-air retirement center. It's going to be decimated. And uh, in fact, a 21 point, almost 22 million uh, population in Florida, with over 50% of Floridians being over the age of 65, has not been hard hit. It's actually had a very low fatality rate, much lower than anybody would have expected. I want to know why. And that can help, you know, protect us as individuals and also inform public policy. Why did wax replicants crowd an Italian church? And what do wax organs tell us about the history of medicine? Why does the Minotaur still intrigue us? And why would its bovine mouth crave human flesh? Hi, I'm Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Join us on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast for the entire month of October as we take our annual descent into a host of bloody, monstrous, and terrifying topics. From forest spirits that beckon you off the path to wax sculptors on a rampage, we'll be looking at spooky subjects all this month to peel away the flesh and reveal the underlying science and history and leave you with an even richer understanding of a world that's always weirder than we can imagine. What sorts of scientific concepts can we glean from episodes of The Outer Limits or Tales from the Dark Side? And what's the ghastly history and promising future of blood substitutes? Join us to find out. New Halloween-themed episodes publish twice a week with older Vault episodes re-entering the world on Saturdays to spread around some of last year's grisly offerings. Listen to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After you listen to today's podcast, here's one to add to your playlist. I'm Christian O'Connell, and I've had this thought for a while. What if you took the world's funniest and most interesting people and asked them to share the stories behind their three most treasured items? When you said the idea, I thought, that's a really good idea. No doubt about it, the guitar. I think I know the, the same chords now as I did when I was 14. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> From iHeartRadio, this is The Stuff of Legends. Add it to your playlist for free. Just search for Stuff of Legends in your podcast app. Okay, so Jason, you went to Carolina, so you are... That's all the credential you need for me to be the expert here. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the political ramifications. Um, Places like Georgia, where Governor Kemp has made this pronouncement that they are going to open up, and not just open up, open up some of the most risky, (laughs) if you ask me, places you could possibly go (laughs) in public, Um, massage Tattoo parlors, uh, nail salons. Did you hear that, Michael? So, so we're talking about he has he has really tried to he's risking things. Um, if it works, if for some reason he the the virus doesn't spike, I imagine he'll be able to to claim vindication uh, and that then say that he was right. If he's wrong, how much of a political fallout? In a place like Georgia, which is not necessarily a swing state, but it's trending towards it, how much of a political fallout could it be for the Republican Party in general everywhere if these governors who are opening their states up turn around and find that they have a lot more infections afterwards? The the biggest political implication right now is this idea of mail-in voting. And the fights that we need to have right now across this country, Republicans and Democrats, to make sure that not just for these primaries, but for this fall, that people have the right to vote. But but let me ask, Michael, let me ask for any any Republic, a Republican or a Democrat. You know, Roy Cooper has kept North oh, Carolina yeah. closed and, and it has upset some people. What, what's the political fallout after this? Well, you know, I, I think it's going to be different depending on where you are. Of course, it's, it's going to be whipsawed by, uh, you know, the right and the left, et cetera. But the reality is, is this, and, and there's a lot of validity to the argument. And, and even Governor Hogan um, is head of the, the National Governors Association in, con- in conversation with governors around the country, uh, is speak, starting to speak to this point that 
in those places where mitigation efforts have taken hold um, and and there has been a flattening of the curve, um, they're they're now looking, if not on a regional basis, certainly on a state by state basis, with respect to how to open up the economy. The the qualifier though is the president's own guidelines, which state very clearly. Um, in order to begin the opening reopening process, you have to have at least two weeks um, of not just a flat line, but a decrease in the number right. of of cases uh, and deaths, um, et cetera. And no state, no state, especially North Carolina, Georgia, are in that position when you look at their numbers. And that's the problem. So opening up this Friday um, to, you know, some of the most risky uh, industries you can possibly open up to in terms of human contact um, sort of begs an outcome that everyone's trying to avoid. And so if, if in 14 days from now, there is uh, a spike or um, North Carolina is not able to flatten as quickly as it otherwise should, given its population, et cetera. Um, yeah, there are going to be some recriminations there. Um, and I don't think it'll be from people outside of North Carolina. I think it'll be North Carolinians um, who mm-hmm. themselves are not happy about this. So I suspect um, what will happen uh, is a lot of folks will continue to self-isolate and will not go out in public as much as a lot of people believe uh, they will or they brag they want to because it's just right. not safe right now. We're, we're not outside that zone where you can say emphatically that two weeks from now, you're not going to start to show symptoms or or be asymptomatic to the degree that you become a carrier and spread the disease. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think you're but right you know, that who, people will stay home. But Amy, what is what does that do to a place like Vegas? The Las Vegas mayor also today um, spoke to Anderson Cooper and pretty much wants to be the control group uh, for the rest of the country. Wants to open up Vegas, and she is of right. course in a position um, th- where where Vegas is a city that's that's at high risk of not right when i saw that story clay i right well when i saw that story that you know she wanted to open up vegas for business uh it it occurred to me that she forgot her own city's motto uh uh well that what happens in vegas stays in vegas well that's not the case for coronavirus what happens in vegas it's gonna be good throughout the country uh but in terms of what are the you know what are the political potential political ramifications of different uh cities and states and regions opening up. I think to Michael's point, it really depends it really depends on where you are. So if you're protesting in Utah because uh, parks have been closed down, you're like, look, I'm gonna hike, I'm not gonna give it to anybody. They're not gonna give it to me. And uh, you know, the the local authorities say, you're right, and they open it up. I don't see that being a big problem. But again, but and then when you look at, you know, much more densely populated places like where I live in New York City, you're not seeing people protesting saying, we wanna open up all the bars and for you, Michael, all the strip clubs, uh, because we know that we live in a place where even getting on the elevator is dangerous. So we tend to be a lot more cautious about these things. But it did also occur to me sort of perversely that politically, we all know that the uh, that older voters tend to be more conservative and vote for the GOP. So if places open up and older voters who are at higher risk uh, succumb to the coronavirus, the GOP could actually see a fewer voters uh, showing up at the polling booth in November. Just kind of a weird, morbid observation. But beyond that, don't they, don't they get upset? <laughs> right. Does, I mean, we know that no political party is at fault for this virus. I mean, no one, no, no politician, no person in the United States caused this virus. Um, but doesn't the response or the lack of, whether it be empathy or the wisdom, lack of wisdom in determining when to open uh, an economy, doesn't that have some sort of political fallout if you make the decision to, well, to but, but open Clay, your you state before you should and people get sick? Am I not going to come back and get right. pissed at you with the election in November? Yes. Well, I think there are two separate things, which is do the 
residents of that state want their state opened up. And it tends to be residents in places where the fatality rates have been low, where population density is low and transmission is much lower. So for them, it might make sense to do it in a careful and methodical and thoughtful way, whereas in places like Detroit, New York City, or Washington, D.C., then yes, people are going to be more cautious and have tended not to want to, you know, uh, ask pedal to get everybody outside. Um, Emma, where's Joe Biden? And and does he is he is he being <laughs> smart about not engaging because it's already political enough, or um, does does he need to be more involved right now? Look, uh, you know, <laughs> I obviously think that he should be more involved, but I think he's towing a tough line right now. Um, it, I know it's it's no longer uh, it's uncouth now to say even though Julian Castro pointed it out at the debate, but Biden is having trouble, you know, when he does his media appearances with some of his sentence structure and a lot of things aren't making a ton of sense. And so I think his campaign is making a calculated uh, move to basically say that they, they don't think it's worth it for him to go on television right now. But right now, the most visible Democrat in the country is Andrew Cuomo. And I think it's a real disservice to the voters who are going to be coming out in the fall for Joe Biden um, and, and for the fact that we really need a strong opposition party to combat Donald Trump, that Biden isn't coming out. Selfishly, he should be as visible as possible and should be portraying himself as the leader of the Democratic Party, but but he, he's not been doing that. Um, and that's Michael does, that would be in his best interest to winning in the I, fall. I vehemently that, disagree. <laughs> Jason, I mean, does, is is he staying just, out I, of it for a reason? What what's your take? I mean, here's the thing: I don't know what people expect him to do. Like, I, I personally, Joe Biden is not a scientist. You know, Joe Biden is is not currently an elected official. I, I always find this sort of where is Joe Biden in these sort of implications that he's slow or he's stumbling or he's mentally all these sorts of things that are the undercurrents of what's going on. I think I I think they're silly and they don't make much sense. Joe Biden's job right now is to occasionally give talks and speeches, occasionally do interviews on television, and then be in touch and contact with the different states down the road, the other politicians, the other activists, and the other people he needs to raise money from because he's running for president. I don't have huge expectations from Joe Biden right now because there's not much the guy can actually do. I don't want to see Joe Biden do pointless press conferences for 90 minutes every single day like President Trump is because he's got nothing to say. And that's not a criticism. It's just the guy doesn't have anything to do. The point is not about like what he's going, his knowledge base on the topic. Trump is out there every single day. And yes, he's making gaffe after gaffe. But you look at the Gallup polls for how people think, uh, you know, the, each of the different institutions responded to the coronavirus and media was at 44% and Trump was at 60%. And that's largely just because he's been visible, even though he's completely botched it. And so I'm talking about from a strategic sense, if Biden wants to win in November, and I desperately want him to because I want Trump out of office, I think it's a terrible move not to be visible. Well, but I, I think there's I a difference a between not being that, visible I, and not being right. out there all the time. That, that's what I'm saying. It's not Joe Biden has not been absent. I've seen the guy do interviews with people, but I, but you can't battle incumbency. I mean, I'm sorry. Donald Trump is going to be on television more often than Joe Biden. Um, I, I don't I there is not much more that I think he should be doing right now in this exact moment when he's still got primaries to go. Now, if Joe Biden is has the same level of presence uh, on the air in in July that he has now that I might be concerned, but it, it's still early on. The guy's still got primaries to go. I, I'm sorry, I just I I don't even from a strategic standpoint. And honestly, if you want to talk about polling, look, the polls that just came out today, Joe Biden's beating Trump by eight in Michigan and nine in in Pennsylvania. I mean, like clearly I mean, not we saw being that on television. In 2016. Yeah, no, but we I didn't think see it by those kind of numbers way. in 2016. Mm-hmm. But I think but there's the a third part- way between what Emma and Jason are saying. Uh, and I take this from uh, my experience. I was a speechwriter for the Senate floor for Bill Frist when he was majority leader, and he's a heart-lung transplant surgeon. And when Katrina happened, he, you know, of course, I wrote speeches for him for the Senate floor, but he also actually flew down 
to New Orleans and went there and started helping people. So for Joe Biden, a way that he could be visible is not, you know, taking pot shots from the sidelines as a candidate, but actually rolling up his sleeves, organizing, you know, interventions, uh, doing, you know, humanitarian work. He would get a lot of attention and he wouldn't have to get into the science. What about or, the social you know, distancing the now, Amy? Of he ain't young. We don't need him catching the well, corona. Well, I mean, I saw yeah. Harry and Megan. I, I saw Harry and Megan delivering lunches in L.A. Well, Harry and Megan ain't like 77. But the point... And, and I just well, the point being that, that Biden, but Biden, of course, does have a lot of resources at his disposal, disposal, and a huge Rolodex that he could be harnessing uh, in terms of humanitarian efforts, philanthropic efforts to try to address this. That would get him a lot of great press and a lot of Michael, goodwill. What's your take? Well, uh, my point uh, is just that the, Bernie Sanders. They said he had to get out, and he got out quite early. And this was so Joe Biden could move on to the general election then Joe Biden should move on to the general election and start acting like a general election candidate. Michael, you've done a few of these elections. So, Give, tell us your thought. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think everybody's a little bit right um, in, in the main here. Uh, but the reality is this. We are in unprecedented chartered, uncharted waters when it right. comes to how a candidate should, be, should act. And I think the needle points a little bit more towards what Jason Johnson is saying than anything else. Because the reality of it is, there is nothing that Joe Biden is going to add to this conversation right now that can give people what they need and what they want. And that is relief from coronavirus. He does not control any, any administration of government. He does not control, control the funding that flows to, to small businesses. The only thing he can do is run his mouth. And oftentimes when you're a candidate in a position like that against an incumbent who has control over those very things, you often step in it. And or you wind up you wind up in a situation where uh, we saw in 2008 with our, our nominee, uh, God rest of John McCain, who did not have a response to how to deal with the economic downturn at that time. Mm -hmm. And Barack Obama mm -hmm. seized the moment and, 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 got, and he got no help from Bush, which you thought Bush would throw a brother a bone. And he did because Bush was like, dude, I'm checking out. This is on you. So I think, I think from this point, at, at this point, until we see more flatlining among the states, and there's a general sense in the country that they're ready to engage in something other than coronavirus dailies. I think the smarter part for him to do is to get on the phone, raise his money, put his organization yeah. in place on the ground to the greatest extent he can, and from time to time, stick his head up and say, okay, this is what, this is that, this is this, and move on. Because to engage in any other way, I think he will wind up finding that people will start to see him as a distraction more than a help. Because he, there's nothing he can deliver there. I do wonder. I mean, Trump last time in 2016, one of the ways he won was he got on the phone every damn day on the phone to Morning Joe, to Fox and Friends, to any TV show that would let him call in. Right. And he just gave his opinion. Is that something that Joe Biden could be right. doing? Jason? He, he could be doing that. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. And this is just to be fair, you know. This is what I was saying about it is the power of the incumbency. I mean, Trump is a president, so he can get on the phone. Nancy Pelosi can get on the phone. Heck, Stacey Abrams, who's doing things in Georgia, can get on the phone. Joe Biden can get on the phone every single day. He is not in a position to enact change. And you got to remember, part of why Donald Trump was able to get on the phone and talk to so many people and got so much free press. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, he couldn't do anything, but, but he was considered entertaining TV. I mean, it was it was part of the greatest yeah. failing of the press that they kept giving this guy because they, they, they like the whole NASCAR car accident element of it. Joe Biden is an actual serious politician. He actually has things he wants to do. So just being on TV for TV's sake and calling in every single show and making pot shots and making people laugh, I, I, I think that's beneath him. And again, at this point, I don't think it's necessary. It, come July, maybe. But I don't but think I, that's I what he needs to, to be doing yeah. right now. There are still people he needs to convince to support him. 
Amy, jump in. But I have to disagree with this idea that the only the only action can come through government, and the only thing politicians can do is use the levers of government or run their mouths. I mean, we have an, an entire philanthropic sector. We have all of these people who are rolling up their shirt sleeves. And let's look at former presidents. We had Al Gore, who got the whole ball on global warming and has a massive now you know global network of organizations. Jimmy Carter, Habitat for Humanity. If uh, you know, Michael, I, I want to ask you. It seems to me it well. It seems to me that the question that Joe Biden could Both be asking them lost is, their elections, "How Amy. can I help? How can <laughs> after after they left office? I, I after they left get, office, get, they I became powerhouses." Joe Biden can be asking, yeah. how can I help? What can I do? I can call the There's CEO of this company or the, or the foundation over here. It's certainly it's not about, it's about just the perception. Is. It's about looking like... But, but, but I the mean, perception the, by who? Like, can I, I, I don't know by, that there's a lot of regular people out there who are saying, I'm waiting for Joe Biden's words. Like the person who's They're home not. right now, the person who's home right now They're who doesn't not. have a job is like, when am I getting my check and am I going to get sick? I don't think they're waiting for Joe Biden. They're probably waiting for what their governor has to say, unless their governor's an idiot like DeSantis or Kemp. I, I mean, I, again, there is not a gap that he can step into right now that I think is absolutely necessary. It, 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 I mean, I, think, I, I get it, but I think some of this is sort of inside the beltway political speak. Because when I talk to regular folks, and I know a lot of regular folks, I know a lot of regular folks who are out of work, and not just my students, but just regular people, they're not worried about Joe Biden right now. The race is over. Yeah. And then let me let me just double down on that on that point because I, I just literally had this conversation today uh, with a number of political operatives and uh, on both the right and the left uh, we were kind of sort of musing about this, the political environment and what we all agree on is the point that Dr. Johnson just made and that is you take anyone and line them up and ask them, what are they concerned about? Joe Biden's name is not coming up as, as a part of a, a solution or an answer they're looking for. Which he it's should be worried about. No, he should not. We know he should no. not. Because there's going to be a president. Emma, <laughs> Emma, come on, speak <laughs> up. We can't let Michael and Look, Jason no. roll over us. <laughs> Look, Mike. I want to say this before we move on and pretend that I... I'm going to have an opinion, not pretend that I'm not biased. I do think that there are a lot of, I do think that there are a lot of people who, for whom Biden's appeal is to some degree a return to calm and normalcy um, and a return to uh, something that, some civility that we have not had in politics for the last three and a half years, for sure. And for those folks, the fact that he is sitting quietly, and not engaging and fighting with Trump throughout something which I agree with Jason, he doesn't have any ability to change, um, is probably more reassuring. And there, there's, there's that old adage, I guess, in, in law, <laughs> not a lawyer, but that if you're winning, shut up. <laughs> You know, and and as, right. a, as, a, as, a, as an avowed progressive and a Democrat, I will say Donald Trump hurts himself every day when he does his press conference. Joe Biden doesn't need to attack him if he just sits quiet and lets him continue to dig the hole he continues to dig. Um, and so I think that maybe staying quiet and maybe not engaging in that nasty political fighting that I think folks have had enough of for three years may benefit Biden more than we realize, um, even though we'd like to see him out there and we'd like to he's not someone who needs name recognition he's not someone who needs to teach people who he is we know joe biden and i think a lot of people who voted for him in the primary voted for him because he's a reassuring presence we don't need to you know i don't think he needs to teach people this is just my this is just my opinion i don't think he needs to teach people i'm not gonna look force myself you know to have the last word so i'll let emma have it no, I mean, I don't want to have the last word. I just want, that's not my goal. My goal is really just to say that what Trump does, Jason brought up the incumbency advantage. Um, that's incredibly real when it comes to media coverage, but it's also real electorally. People have seen him behind the podium. We talk about how Joe Biden's a legitimate politician. Uh, he's certainly more legitimate than Trump, but it doesn't matter in terms of that fact pattern if the American public now sees Trump as legitimate and the numbers are backing up that Trump is, you know, going up in his approval rating and that people are more, 
approving of his pandemic response than a lot of media is saying even well i don't I know what you're looking at girl but, but i think you're holding that perception. piece of paper upside down because everything i've seen his numbers yeah, have been going down look there's different polls and it's changed recently but it's not as bad as people would have anticipated with given how much he's botched it and so i just think the, the amount of visibility I was going to say to your point, Emma, the president has dropped 13 points in the last three weeks from his 60-point yeah. high. He's now okay. on the average at 47. Um, and and uh, so yeah, they're going to have to put him in a hyperbaric chamber that, because that pressure is dropping fast. No, I appreciate right. the updated. <laughs> yes, I hear that. Okay, so that that those uh, that average is important, and so that does uh, affect what I'm trying to say. But the overall tenor of what I'm saying is just that visibility is really important. I hear what everyone is talking about there, but Trump has an incumbency advantage as well as the perception that he's an outsider, which is what people are craving. And those two things put together, um, I think, are a, a really deadly combination when running up against Joe Biden, who is an insider and has been in Washington for a long okay. time. I think that's a so fair point. there's the return to normalcy, but uh, but those I, I, I don't want to underestimate that formidable aspect um, because I, I do think it's a big thing that Trump okay. has in the general. Let's move on to our quick fire round. We take questions from our listeners and we, uh, and we give one to each of you individually to answer on your own in the clear uh, without, without any <laughs> bite and fight back from anybody else. Emma, um, Jose from Saratoga, I don't know where that is, uh, says moderate Democrats say Biden is the lesser of two evils. Will Democratic socialists and Bernie supporters get behind him? So uh, I, I think a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters are going to get behind Joe Biden. Um, I, I think that there's a lot of focus on that in the media, right? So in 2016, a higher percentage of, of Bernie Sanders supporters uh, voted for Hillary Clinton than in 2008, Hillary Clinton supporters uh, voted for Obama. So the Bernie or bust thing I do think is overblown. Um, but I will say that I think the primary voters who were brought in to uh, the Democratic primary who voted for Bernie Sanders, who were the Bernie or busters, whoever they are, they were probably always only going to vote for Bernie Sanders in the general election. Um, the people who were going to vote blue no matter who, they're going to do that. I, I, I think the bigger focus that the Biden campaign needs to have is kind of winning over the apolitical center, just the regular people in the middle of the country, um, blue-collar workers, people who are feel disaffected by politics, and he needs to speak speak acutely to how he's going to change their lives, not just a return to normalcy, but an alternate vision of what policy-wise he's going to do. Um, and we saw Obama was able to win over a lot of those voters in 2008, and then they flipped to Trump. So uh, I think that's where the focus should be, as opposed to the DSA crowd um, that's, you know, maybe vocal online, but they were always only going to vote for Bernie Sanders in the general election. Okay, anyway. Michael, Deidre from San Bernardino asks, where are the Mitt Romneys of the world? Have moderate Republicans disappeared? Uh, moderate Republicans have been dying since uh, the Nixon strategy of 1968 uh, to shift the, the power center of the GOP from the Northeast, which was the, the bedrock of, of national Republicanism, to the South. Um, and the Southern strategy, which embraced uh, disaffected white male uh, conservative Democrats who were largely redneck hooligans, um, uh, sort of put a lot of pressure, which we're now seeing play out within the party in the last uh, 20 years, certainly since Reagan left office. Um, so this idea of the moderate Democrat um, is, is a very uh, tough uh, nut to crack open, largely because a lot of folks have decided to become independent, leave the party, um, and those that remain, um, you know, try to fight as best they can, uh, like a Mitt Romney, but up against what has now become the Trumpification of the party, that's made more difficult because you have uh, a commander in chief who himself uh, has very little regard for that that 
side of the Republican establishment. So it's made much harder. And you've seen over the last three years that voice diminish more and more to the point where it just either placates or just disappears altogether. Dr. Johnson, Tiffany from Eureka, I think. Is that in Oregon? Tiffany from Tiffany? Um, okay, yes. There you go. Uh, would it be fair, Dr. Johnson, <laughs> would it be fair to call Biden a conservative? His words aside, Biden has voted for with neocons and Wall Street more than he ever has for the populist left. No, Joe Biden isn't conservative. Joe Biden is, you can call him a centrist. You can say that his platform, his platform now is more liberal than Barack Obama's was in 2008. Um, the, the, the greatest criticism, because that's the core of this, the greatest criticism that I can have of Joe Biden is that I don't know that he thinks big enough. I don't know that he thinks radically enough to counteract what we've experienced under Donald Trump for the last three years. Returning to normal will not work, obviously, because normal doesn't exist anymore. We're going to need someone who is interested in big structural change. We're going to need someone who's ready to completely transform how this country operates. Joe Biden is not a conservative, but he might be too conservative in his thinking if he believes that he can become president of the United States and find a way to work with people like Mitch McConnell, who, quite frankly, will have already dedicated themselves to destroying anything and everything that any Democrat attempts to do. So conservative no by no means and anyone who doesn't i'll just say this at the end anyone anyone who pretends that there is no difference between joe biden and donald trump anyone who pretends that joe biden is some terrible evil conservative i don't care what kind of ridiculous uh plague on both sides horseshoe theory nonsense they want to fall for you are essentially saying that you're perfectly happy with keeping donald trump in office who will become not just a proto but an actual fascist if this man is allowed to stay in office past november Amy, Tim from Montgomery asks, should Shake Shack have given the money back? Yes. <laughs> that, was, that was quick and easy. There you go. I don't think there's going to be too much disagreement. Too much disagreement on that from that. Uh, perfect. That's perfect way to end it. Um, so, so as we're all sitting at home, um, uh, as, as we go through this quarantine pandemic stuck inside, where can we find each of you? Uh, uh, Michael, are you still doing, um, are you still doing Steel and Unger? I'm not doing Steel Longer, but I have my own podcast, the Michael Steele podcast, uh, which you can download on Twitter and I mean, Twitter on um, uh, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and all those great locations. You can also uh, check me out on MSNBC, where I, I remain uh, a political analyst, even though I'm not a doctor or, or scientist. <laughs> There's still a little <laughs> politics going on there. So um, catch me on Twitter at Michael Steele. And uh, check out the website, uh, com. Excellent. Emma, you're on, um, you're on every, uh, every day on TYT Politics, which is now on YouTube TV, so I can get it there. It's pretty much everywhere now. Where else can we see and find you? Well, we rebranded, um, you know, our, our fearless leader, Jank, who has a big personality, changed it to, uh, I'm sure you guys have heard on this podcast, changed it to uh, Rebel HQ. I'll name of the name, but you find it on com slash Emma, my first name. Um, that's easy. And you can find me on Twitter, uh, Instagram at Emma Vigeland. And you're going to, you're going to be Instagramming Amy as well. Are you going to sing? If you sing, if you put something on your Instagram, Amy singing, I will sing on mine. Uh, <laughs> Clay, well, gosh, I, I don't think I've ever hoping to hear you sing on Instagram. <laughs> I just try to keep my mouth shut as much as possible, but, um, it doesn't seem to work nowadays. Amy, you're on a, where, where can we find you besides Develte well, Veltulkas, I have a weekly column, and you can read uh, my latest uh, feature this week, and I'll spell it for you, W-E-L-T-W-O-C-H-E, Veltvoche.com, or .ch, I should say, because it's Swiss, uh, long an interview with Bill Maher talking about panic porn, the main media been trying to uh, publish stories based on fear rather than facts and science. So I encourage people to go to Veltvoche.ch to read my work, and uh, after this podcast, I'm going to be getting back to Netflix and tweezing my chin hairs. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Wow. Thank you. Um, wow. Dr. Johnson, okay. <laughs> follow that. Uh, yeah, I can't, I can't top that. Um, I can't. I, my shaving regime is not as not nearly as appealing as yours, Amy. Um, so, uh, uh, you can always find me. Uh, I want a video of that on You can always Instagram, find me on the Twitters. Amy. 
<laughs> oh yeah, yeah. It'll 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 be shameful. Um, you can always find me on Twitter at dr Jason Johnson. My writing now is appearing on the Grio, uh, which actually spun off of MSNBC. I'm still an MSNBC computer, uh, contributor, similar to Michael. Um, when when they need they need real doctors now, not fake doctors like me. Uh, <laughs> my my PhD doesn't give me any medical skills. Uh, but yes, find me on Twitter at dr Jason Johnson. Uh, find me on the Grio. Um, find me on MSNBC, and soon to be launching a little YouTube show with a couple of political consultant friends of mine, uh, a little quarantine action, which we'll have an official title for, which we'll be announcing on Twitter in about a week. Very nice. Thanks so much to everyone who's listening. You can email your questions for next week's panel to podcasts at politicon.com, or you can send them on Twitter or Instagram at politicon for both of those. And we will be back here next week with another incredible panel and see if we can answer the question, how the heck are we going to get along? Thanks so much. See you next week. Thirteen days of Halloween. A remote hotel, the most unusual guests, a tour guide that can't be trusted. And the newest arrival is you. Why are you here again? They sound like someone you trust. I know you care. Starring Keegan-Michael Key as the caretaker. Please make yourself at home. After all, this is it. One story each night, starting October 19th and ending on Halloween. From iHeartRadio and Blumhouse Television, listen to Aaron Mankey's 13 Days of Halloween on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? I am Machine Gun Kelly, and look, I know Halloween is going to suck this year because there's no trick-or-treating and all that, but I've got a treat. There's a musical podcast that I made with my friends 24K Golden, Ian Dior, and Dana Dentata, and Satan. Well, Satan's not my friend, but Tommy Lee is, and Tommy Lee is playing Satan. But don't just take it from me. Tell him, Satan. Thanks, dude. It feels great to be playing Satan on this podcast. Listen to Halloween in Hell on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts on.